This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So there's a tremendous amount of excitement about the microbiome at the moment, in part due to the $173 million NIH Human Microbiome Project, where the results catapulted from the pages of Science and Nature to the cover of Scientific American to the cover of The Economist in record time and into public consciousness. Part of the excitement is that we're finding, due to the uh, decline in cost in DNA sequencing, over a million-fold in the last 15 years, the microbes do all kinds of things that we never suspected. For example, they determine how attractive we are to mosquitoes. So you're not crazy when you go camping. You might really be 10 times as attractive to mosquitoes as the person you're camping with. They determine how we respond to drugs. And uh, they even dis- uh, determine traits like, uh, like obesity and uh, a wide range of other diseases have subsequently been linked to the microbiome. So a lot of what we're trying to do at the moment is understanding how can we map our microbes across our bodies or across our planet. And uh, the intuition here is that as you go to different parts of the world, you see different species in different locations that immediately identify a scene that's coming from one place or another or another. So with microbes, it's more or less the same, but we have the problem that they basically look the same under a microscope, unlike these charismatic megafauna. So instead, what we do is we tend to their DNA to understand them. And in the Human Microbiome Project, together with a team of about 400 researchers across the country, we collected about 4.5 trillion A's, T's, G's, and C's. But then the problem with the data is it looks like this. Uh, so, um, so this is the first 0.1% of the first file. There's another 17,000 of these. And it's pretty hard to tell who lives where in the environment from that, right? So what we do is we use computational techniques to develop these kinds of abstract maps where each point summarizes all of the complexity in a given microbial community, uh, summed up by its DNA, and two points close together are more similar in terms of the evolutionary history of their microbes. Uh, Two that are further apart are more dissimilar in their microbial evolutionary history. And so when we do this, we see automatically emerging these major patterns where the mouth is very different from the skin and the vaginal microbiomes, and the fecal microbiome down the bottom there is distinct yet again. And so, um, and so what this implies is that two samples from the same person can be real different in terms of the microbes. So here I'm highlighting one oral sample and one fecal sample from the, pers- from the first person of the Human Microbiome Project. So these are pretty different on this map, but we only really understood this when we cross-referenced the data to the Earth Microbiome Project, where we can go out into different physical environments and ask what two samples are as different from each other as uh, the uh, the mouth and the gut of this one person. And so if we compare your mouth to being kind of like a coral reef, you have these complex mineralized structures uh, covered with biofilms that maybe your dentist pesters you about, uh, then the microbes, uh, the microbes in the gut are as far away from the microbes in the mouth as the microbes in this reef are from the microbes in this prairie in Kansas, right? So essentially non-overlapping communities. And what that means is that a few feet along the length of your GI tract can make as much difference to your microbes as hundreds of miles across the Earth's surface. And what I'll show you is that the skin, which is like yet another uh, microbial continent, has tremendous diversity as well, both within you as an individual and between different people. So this might lead you to wonder how stable our microbiome is, at least if we're healthy. And my partner, Amanda, who's, uh, I've got to admit, has put up with a lot in the name of microbiome research, and I uh, address this question by sampling our own microbiomes every single day for a period of six months. So when I project that into a slightly simpler version of this data frame, basically the dark points on this are me, uh, the, light points, uh, the, the light points are here. 
And what you can see when I start this going, so each frame in this animation is one day as we move through this landscape of microbiomes defined by different people. And you can see immediately how the skin in blue is much more variable even within one person than the other sites. The mouth in green is the most constant, and then the gut down at the bottom uh, is, uh, is intermediate between the two. And you can also see how we retain our separate microbial identities through this six-month period. And that's especially remarkable when you consider we live together and have all kinds of opportunities to exchange microbes with each other. Uh, I'll just rotate this around so you can see how we retain those separate microbial identities there. So all of this might lead you to wonder, uh, where, where do we get these unique, personally, uh, personally unique microbes from? And uh, if you have dogs or kids, as I do, you probably have some dark suspicions about that, um, all, 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 all of which are true, by the way. So it turns out I can actually match you up to your dog by the microbes you share. Um, now, that's not, to say that, uh, that's not to say that your microbes are exactly the same as the dogs. So here, uh, what we can see um, on, on a map that includes both humans and dogs is that at every site of the body, whether it's the tongue, the stool, or the skin, um, the dog and the human are separate from one another. And again, you can see that the dog's skin is very variable, just like the human skin is. Uh, but, but in all seriousness, uh, our first microbes depend tremendously on how we're born. And so uh, this is what we did with Maria Gloria Dominguez-Ballet, now at NYU, uh, looking at microbes of mothers an hour before they gave birth, and then of their babies within 20 minutes of birth. And what you can see in red is the vaginal uh, communities from the mothers. And then in pink, we have microbes from all over the bodies, including the skin and including the gut of babies 20 minutes after they were born. Whereas in contrast, in dark blue, we have all the skin communities from the mothers. And in light blue, we have all the habitats from all over the body of babies delivered by C-section. So uh, what you can see is that if you're delivered by C-section, you're denied the vaginal microbes you would ordinarily have as you pass through the, uh, the birth canal. And we think that the lack of that co-evolved microbial community may explain some of the differences in health between vaginally delivered and C-section babies. Of course, the most likely outcome if you have a kid by C-section is that your kid will be fine, but there are somewhat higher risks of all kinds of diseases, including atopic dermatitis, uh, food allergies, um, and even obesity, all of which have now been linked to the microbiome. So, um, so, so again with Maria Gloria, uh, we're doing this trial at the moment to try to figure out can you restore the microbial community to kids delivered by C-section. And so what we're doing here is essentially collecting the vaginal microbes from others and then delivering them to the babies. And this is very preliminary data at this point, but we are able to show partial restoration of the microbial community, both in the, uh, both in the gut and in the skin, uh, by applying this procedure. Uh, and, um, and so we're uh, hoping to develop this into a large enough study to develop clinical recommendations based on this microbial restoration. So you might be wondering, well, what happens after that? And what I'm going to show you now is the trajectory of uh, one child. This is work we did with Ruth Lay, tracking uh, one, one child over the first two and a half years of life. And so we're only going to be looking at his gut community. Um, he was delivered vaginally, and you can see that his initial, community, uh, his, his initial um, fecal sample is up there in the vaginal region, um, with perhaps a little skin contribution as well. And so the question is, how long does it take him to move through this landscape towards the adult fecal community over two and a half years? How complete is that progression uh, down towards the bottom? And is it smooth or is it, uh, is it, um, is it chaotic? 
So what you can see is some weeks he changes a little bit, whereas other weeks he changes a lot. And remember what matters on these plots is the distance from one point to another. So uh, it really is true that one week to the next, uh, your kid can look like a completely different person, at least when you compare uh, the distances between these points to the distances between healthy adults and the Human Microbiome Project, which are those points in brown at the bottom. Now, coming up here is something fascinating. So he gets antibiotics for an ear infection. You see that tremendous regression of the microbiome and then a recovery. That went by pretty fast, so I'm just going to rewind it for you and play it again. Uh, so what you can see is on administration of oral amoxicillin for an ear infection, you see this tremendous regression of the gut microbiome and doing months of normal development, followed in this case by rapid recovery. And then by the time he gets to two and a half years, he's more or less in the healthy adult distribution. Um, but we just don't know in general uh, what the effects of antibiotics are on the rest of the body in the, in the sites that aren't targeted and whether those early life changes can have profound and lasting effects. There's some evidence in both humans and experimental uh, animal models that early life antibiotics in the first six months can lead, to, uh, can lead to increased rates of obesity, but we don't know about the impact on the skin, uh, on the mouth and on other sites in the body yet. Um, we can also do this sort of thing cross-culturally. So here, um, in, in work with Jeff Gordon, we show that an African population in red, uh, South American population in green, and in the US population in blue, uh, the gut communities converged on one another over the first three years of life. However, uh, where they wound up uh, in, in the three populations was very different. So the rate of approach to the adult state is very similar cross-culturally, um, but the final state where you end up can be very different. And you can see the Western population in that right-hand panel uh, in, in, in blue is very different from the two non-Western populations. And in that respect, uh, it's important to remember that even large-scale projects like the Human Microbiome Project have largely only looked at healthy Western adults. And as soon as you start to go into children and as soon as you start to go into non-Western populations, you see very different things. And this is true not just in the gut, but in every site in the body. So, for example, this is what we did with Maria Gloria Dominguez uh, looking, at, uh, looking at previously uncontacted Yanomami in South America. And what you, can see, um, what you can see is that the Yanomami population is more diverse in the skin, so that's that left panel, uh, than the U.S. population. And then the microbes that they have on the skin are completely different. So those green points separate completely from the yellow points of the U.S. population. So this might lead you to wonder, uh, well, we've seen that the skin can vary cross-culturally, but how does it vary over the human body? And this is what we've been doing with Peter Durrestein uh, here at UCSD in, in the Skaggs School of Pharmacy. And, um, of course, the skin is just so fascinating as this interface between ourselves and the physical environment that we're in contact with. So, um, so, so Peter was interested in how microbes vary over the skin, so he recruited two subjects, uh, one of which was him, and um, sampled the skin at 500 sites over the body, and then uh, analyzed each of those sites using two kinds of mass spectrometry, and we sequenced the DNA of the bacteria to give a readout of where they are all over the body. And uh, one thing that was fascinating is that, although my, uh, is that although the microbes can differentiate the two subjects from one another, they're not nearly as distinct subject to subject as the metabolites are. So you can see that the metabolites form these two completely separate clouds, uh, one for the male uh, in blue and one for the female in red. And so the metabolites, we can track down where they are on the body, and some of them are broadly distributed all over the body. Some are localized to the armpit or to the groin or to the toenails uh, or other particular sites. And we can do the same kind of thing for the microbes. So, for example, Staphylococcus is mostly in the moist regions like you'd expect, so the nose and the feet. Propionobacterium more on the head and shoulders. And Carinobacterium uh, broadly, over, um, uh, broadly over the body. 
Um, so one, one thing that was really fascinating about this was uh, when, we, uh, when we built these molecular networks um, to try to figure out how the chemicals related to one another, what we could see is that most of the chemicals that we found on human skin did not come from pure bacterial cultures or from human skin cell cultures, but instead came from beauty products. And in fact, 90% of the chemicals that we identified on skin in the study came from sunscreen and moisturizer and shampoo and other things that our subjects applied to their bodies. So that's just fascinating, right? The 90% of the identifiable chemicals on your body probably come from consumer products that you apply. So to address this problem, um, uh, I've been working with the Hadza uh, in, in, in uh, Tanzania together with uh, Jeff Leach uh, through the Human Food Project. And, um, and, and so uh, these are people who have not been exposed to any of these products at all. And uh, essentially, um, essentially what we've been doing is, uh, is, is, um, is sampling uh, a wide range of things there, including the gut, the skin, uh, the various dwellings and so forth on, uh, on, on different projects. And so what you, what you can see is that the, uh, the, the Hadza, uh, shown here in yellow, have very different metabolic communities from the Westerners, um, even when we were out at the field site. So uh, we're at the same location, but you see there's very different skin metabolite profiles. And uh, what, what you can see is of the metabolites um, uh, that, that, we, uh, that we saw, only about 25% of what was identified is shared by the Hadza skin and the skin of Westerners. Um, you can also see that the Hadza skin is much closer to the environmental samples, mostly water samples, that we collected on site in green there. Um, and they're also, they also have a fairly large contribution from honey, which can make up a lot of their calories in the dry season, which is when we were doing the sampling. And uh, we can also see a number of plants that are contributing to the Hadza uh, and, and not to the Westerner metabolites. And so these are things like baobabs and other, um, uh, and, and other uh, major, major sources of food uh, that we can track down uh, the specific metabolic links between the food and the person. Um, so this, this is a kind of molecular network um, where essentially you can think of this as basically being like constellations of the different metabolites where you connect up the ones that are related to each other and match them up to different kinds of environmental samples. And so what we can do with this is we can identify uh, clusters that are specific to particular niches. Um, so, for example, uh, we can see plant flavonoids, uh, we can see, uh, we, we can see uh, monosterate, uh, which is more on the healthcare uh, products in the U.S. population. And we can zoom in and, for example, look at the flavonoids and uh, how, how, they, um, how they're similar, uh, uh, how, how the profiles are somewhat uh, similar, but, um, but then with the subtle differences between the U.S. and the Hadza individuals in the, in the study. Um, and then similarly, we can do this sort of thing with sterols, uh, which again are mostly coming from plant metabolites uh, and from sucrose from the beehive, uh, which, which is found predominantly in the Hadza. Um, so we can also do this sort of thing uh, looking at the bacteria, and uh, what, uh, what, what I'm doing here is just colouring it by body site. So for example, the green is stool, um, the, uh, the pink is skin, and you can see this tremendous heterogeneity in the skin. And uh, we, we, also, we also got some samples through collaborators at the Yerkes Primate Centre, and uh, I'm just going to make some of the balls bigger uh, for the chimpanzees. Those of you familiar with chimpanzee anatomy will understand why. And, um, uh, and so what, what you can see is that the fecal samples uh, for the chimps are distinct from the fecal samples from the humans. And then correspondingly, the few, the few skin samples we have from one chimpanzee individual, uh, those large pink balls, are substantially distinct from the skin samples from any of the humans, including the Hadza. 
And then within the human population, what you can see here, uh, basically the gray uh, samples of skin uh, uh, samples from Westerners, and uh, the colored balls are, are, are from Hadza from, from different camps. And you can see that again, uh, like the South American Yanomami group I showed you before, the Hadza skin samples are distinct from what we see in Westerners. So we're just starting to uncover uh, the links between microbiology and different lifestyles. I, I should point out that, uh, that, that most of these, uh, most of this, uh, most of this data for the Hadza and for the chimpanzees was assembled over the past week, uh, and, and many of these figures we made uh, last night or, or this morning. So this is still very preliminary data. We're still trying to fully understand the results. Um, so anyway, one thing that's exciting about matching up the metabolite uh, and, the, um, and the bacterial profiles is we can get an idea of what bacteria are doing what functions. So if I show you something like Propionobacterium, which is mostly on the head and shoulders, and then, uh, sorry, most, mostly on the head and shoulders, and then something like oleic acid, which is on the head and on the hands, you can see, you can see in the third figure that uh, oxidized oleic acid, is a, which is a metabolic product of oleic acid, is on the head where you see Propionobacterium, but not on the hands where you don't see it. And then similarly with palmitic acid, we can see, uh, we can see it getting degraded to monoolein, monopalmitin, uh, only where propionobacterium is. So what we can do then is we can, we can test that hypothesis by taking the bacteria, cultured off skin, um, and then uh, incubating it with a precursor and just verifying that, uh, that that particular bacterium in the lab can do the chemical reaction that we attribute to it. Um, okay, so I'm just going to talk very briefly about how we exchange our skin microbes with our environment. And uh, for, example, uh, for example, we can match up uh, the keys on your computer keyboard to the tips of your fingers and the palm of your hand with your computer mouse with up to 95% accuracy based on the microbes you share. Uh, so this came out in the scientific journal PNES a few years ago. Here I'm just showing you the skin uh, of the fingertips and the keyboard keys clustering together by subject for three different people. But more importantly, it was on the TV show CSI Miami, so you really know it's true. Uh, in any case, we can use this kind of mapping technique to look at sources of pathogens in the kitchen, uh, where you can see in that top panel that you're leaving your, your skin communities primarily on, on the door handles and the trash can and other things that you touch. We can do the same kind of thing in bathrooms. So here you can see that the skin's mostly on the door handles and the toilet seats. Uh, the stool's fortunately mostly confined to the bathroom. Then there's a big signal from soil on the floor and intriguingly also on the flush handle um, where apparently a lot of people were using their feet to flush. And coming from, <laughs> coming from New Zealand, I had never heard of this cultural practice, but apparently it's fairly common in the U.S., uh, we can also do the same sort of thing in homes. So this is some work we did with Jack Gilbert, looking at what happens when you move into a new house. And you can imagine some different scenarios. So for example, you might stay the same and the house might stay the same. Uh, you might unpack your microbes all over the house with the rest of your belongings. Uh, maybe the house instead contributes microbes to you. Uh, or finally, maybe you and the house blend into a new community state. Uh, one thing we saw is that the house microbes were very highly correlated with the human microbes from the same dwelling. Um, there was one case where there were two lodges, and a, uh, sorry, where there was a couple and a lodger, and to everyone's immense relief, the two, the two people in the couple were more similar to one another in their microbial community than either was to the lodger, and uh, so we didn't, uh, so there was no uh, difficult explaining to do. But um, 
One, one thing we can do is we can track the individual contribution to different, uh, to different surfaces. So here what we're looking at is each individual and each dog's contribution to different surfaces, like the bathroom doorknob, the bedroom floor, and so on. You can see that black line. Uh, that's where person one went away on a trip, and you can see their particular contribution to all of these surfaces disappearing uh, during that period where, when they're away. So we can even tell uh, who's inhabiting a particular space uh, by the microbes that they're leaving behind. Um, more seriously, we can apply this sort of thing in the hospital environment to look at hospital-acquired infections. And um, we can also apply these questions to really, um, these techniques to really compelling questions in animal health. Uh, so, for example, in the Earth Microbiome Project, uh, we've been looking at a huge number of different microbial samples, so over uh, 30,000 samples provided by members of the community. And, uh, for example, looking at, uh, looking at Komodo dragons, so this is me swabbing a baby uh, Komodo dragon at the Denver Zoo uh, called Bintang, um, what we can see is that each Komodo dragon in their enclosure uh, shares a whole lot of microbes with the particular enclosure it's in, just like we do as humans with the enclosures in which we capture ourselves. Um, but what's fascinating is that uh, the microbial communities of the captive Komodo dragon soil don't resemble at all the communities that we see in soil in the wild. So you see these two completely distinct clouds of points. And uh, what, what's interesting is that the degree of sharing is pretty similar to the degree of sharing we see between humans and pets in the same houses, uh, but not the degree of sharing that we see with wild amphibians in their environment, where a constant input of microbes seems to be really important for health. Speaking of amphibian health, one thing that's really important is this fungal uh, disease called, um, uh, uh, called BD, which is leading to amphibian declines worldwide. And uh, one thing that's fascinating, and this has worked with Val McKenzie at Boulder, uh, is that we can look at a whole lot of different amphibians and actually, um, and actually put them along this axis of resistance from the least resistant to the most resistant to BD based on the skin microbial community. And then the really cool part is, like Rich showed you in humans, we can actually transfer the microbes from, 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 from one frog to another and confer resistance to the skin fungus. And so this idea of microbial transplants is turning out to be incredibly compelling. So I'll just wrap, wrap up very briefly by, uh, by mentioning that you can put yourself on these kinds of microbial maps now through this project called American Gut, but we'll also accept skin and other samples. And um, not everyone wants to know what's in there. Uh, these are middle schoolers reacting to the idea we're going to use robots and lasers to look at their poop. Um, but, uh, but just to reorient you on the map, in cases like Clostridium difficile, uh, what you can see is this extreme dysbiotic microbial community if you have this profound form of diarrhea where you're going to the bathroom many times a day. I just, want to, I just want to show you what happens when you do ecosystem restoration, where you have one donor who's down in the healthy state there and transmit that to four patients. Um, so this is with Mike Sadowski and Alex Kurutz at the University of Minnesota. And what you can see is that on transmission of that microbiome from the uh, healthy donor to the four, uh, to four of these patients, um, and each frame of this is just going to be one day in the life of the microbiome, uh, what you can see is essentially immediately they go from the unhealthy state into the healthy state, and then they stay there. And so the prospects to do this kind of thing, um, and this is coupled to clinical remission of their symptoms within a day or two, uh, the, the ability to do this sort of thing in all body habitats, whether it's the gut or the skin or elsewhere, is an incredibly compelling area uh, of medicine today, given the large number of diseases that we now know are linked to the microbiome. 
But what we really have to do is develop not just these microbial maps, but a kind of microbial GPS that tells you uh, not just where are you right now, but where do you want to go in terms of your microbiome, and what do you need to do step by step in order to get there. We need to develop this and make it so easy to use that even our children can use it. So you can imagine a kind of smart toilet that's going to do an analysis of your microbes and your metabolites, it's going to deliver it to your smartphone, which, let's face it, I bet you're using in there anyway. And um, it's going to tell you, uh, and it's going to tell you whether you're going in a good direction or a bad direction, and maybe what specifically you need to do in order to improve the health of any of your microbiomes, whether it's your gut or your skin. So, with that, I'll briefly thank again the many people who contributed to the specific work I showed you. Uh, the large number uh, of uh, amazing people I've had working with me in my lab, uh, currently and formerly. And uh, finally, thanks for your attention. I first got interested in lice um, many years ago when my now 25-year-old son was in elementary school. And he came home with one of those flyers saying that one of the kids in his class had shown up with lice and, you know, what sorts of things parents should be on the lookout for. And also included was a flyer with a bunch of what uh, I refer to as sort of fun facts about human lice that I didn't know about. <laughs> so these include the fact that our lice only parasitize humans, so they don't live on cats or dogs or your other pets. You don't have to worry about picking them up from them or transferring them to your pets. So in other words, this means they're obligate parasites of humans, right? They can only live on human hosts. Secondly, they can't survive more than about 24 hours away from the human body. So that means they can't take up residence in your bedding or your clothing or et cetera and then you know, reinfect you from that sort source. And so I thought, well, if this is true, then what that means is that the spread of lice around the world must have been ac accomplished by the spread of humans around the world. And since human migrations is something that I'm interested in, then maybe by studying lice, we can learn something more about human migrations. But then... A few years later, when I actually had time to start looking into this in more detail, I found out that it was actually potentially even more interesting because, um, you know, as humans, we like to think about what and look into what makes us special, what makes us different from other creatures. Well, one of the things that makes us unique, as far as I know, in the animal world, is that we were the only species parasitized by three different types of lice. Okay, lice are ubiquitous. You know, all mammals have lice, birds have lice, fish have lice. We alone have three different types of lice. <laughs> Two of these that I'll talk about to start out, and then mention the third one later, are the head louse, Pediculus capitis, and the body louse, Pediculus humanus, or sometimes also classified as a subspecies of Pediculus capitis. And as you can see, morphologically, they look quite similar. What actually differentiates them is their ecology. So the head louse, as the name suggests, lives and feeds exclusively on the human scalp. Body louse feeds on the body, but actually lives in the clothing, and lays its eggs in clothing. And so now you ask yourself, well, how would this difference come about? Why would we have these two different kinds of lice that do these two different things? And the answer that seems to make the most sense is that this ecological difference between head and body louse probably arose when clothing became important in human evolution. And then it became available as a new niche, a new ecological niche that lice could move into and start exploiting and start adapting to and evolved to become body lice. And if that's true, if you buy that, what we can do is use a molecular clock approach, and we can date the origin of body lice, the divergence between head and body lice. 
By inference, that tells us when clothing became important in human evolution. So what do we need to do the molecular clock? Well, the molecular clock is a long-standing idea in, in evolutionary genetics, and it goes back to the idea that the rate of evolution, the rate of change of DNA sequences, is approximately constant over time. And this idea is supported by a good deal of observation. So you take pairs of species where you have some idea when they diverge from fossil or biogeographic evidence. You measure the amount of DNA divergence between them, and you plot that, and you see a very strong and astonishingly close correlation between how much divergence there is in DNA sequences and how long ago those two species last shared a common ancestor. It's also supported by theory, but I'll skip over the gory details of that. So what do we need in order to use a molecular clock approach? Well, we need a calibration point. We need to know how fast the clock is ticking. We need to know what is the rate of change in our DNA sequences. And so what we did in order to do this is we assume that when chimpanzees and humans diverged, chimps being the closest living relative of humans, so did their lice. So the idea that when hosts diverge, their parasites also diverge, or this coevolution between hosts and parasites, it's a long-standing observation in biology. There are certainly many exceptions to it, but by and large it is the rule. When hosts speciate, so do their spare parasites. So we therefore can get an idea of how fast the clock is ticking, if we can take chimpanzee lice, compare them to human lice, measure their DNA differentiation, and we assume that they, that differentiation occurred about six million years ago. So that then gives us our calibration that tells us how fast the clock is ticking. In addition to do this work, we need our lice samples. So we got head lice and body lice from all different sources around the world. Um, not everyone was uh, uh, pleased to hear from us, and sometimes we got... Uh, <laughs> you know, rather indignant responses about how dare we suggest they might have lice at their facility. But nonetheless, we got a good worldwide sample of lice. We also got chimpanzee lice, ridiculous shepai, from a chimp sanctuary in Uganda. And what is also very important is since we have no clue as to what these things are actually supposed to look like, we had a local expert examine them and confirm that the identifications were indeed correct. So then what we did is we obtained DNA sequences from these lice, we obtained two mitochondrial DNA gene sequences, which gave the same results when analyzed separately, so we combined them, analyzed them together. Also, just to make sure that there wasn't something strange about the mitochondrial DNA, we obtained and analyzed sequences of two nuclear genes. And then we did a couple of sanity checks to make sure that the results we were getting sort of corresponded to what we might expect. So one of the things we looked at was the genetic diversity um, in the African lice versus the non-African lice. What you can see is that all of these genes have different amounts of diversity, which is what we always observe because the amount of diversity in a gene is um, a reflection of the functional constraints on that gene. But what we also see is that for each gene, there's more diversity in the African lice than in the non-African lice. And greater diversity implies that's where the source is, that's where the origin is, because you've had the most time to accumulate the most diversity. And that's good, because what this indicates is that um, greater diversity in African lice implies an African origin of human lice. And since that's where we think humans arose, that's a good sanity check. The other check we did on this is to compare the head lice and the body lice. And again, you can see for each of these three genes, more diversity in the head lice than in the body lice. And so that fits with the scenario I told you about, that the body lice are of more recent origin than the head lice. They've had less time to accumulate diversity. So now we can do a phylogenetic analysis putting together all of these lice sequences, 
using the chimpanzee louse as an outgroup. The H's are the head lice, the B's are the body lice, the numbers in parentheses are the numbers of individual lice that had that particular sequence. And when we apply the molecular clock approach, we see that the clade here that contains all of the body lice sequences, as well as some of the head lice sequences, has an age of about 70,000 years ago, give or take a few tens of thousands of years. And so what we can also see in this tree is that there is a particular clade there which contains all of the body lice as well as some of the head lice sequences, which has lots and lots of little short branches. And that's a signature of a population expansion. What we also see in this analysis is evidence for population expansion occurring in lice around this time. So the conclusion we came up with from this study is body lice arose about 70,000 years ago, which then implies that that's when clothing became important in human evolution, provided the niche for body lice to start diverging. Now, how does this compare to archaeological evidence concerning the origin of clothing? Well, clothing itself doesn't fossilize, so what we have to do is rely on indirect evidence. And so if we look at the indirect evidence, you know, stone tools and bone tools that would be unequivocally associated with clothing, things like needles, for example, those are on the order of about 40,000 years old at the most. Now, there's certainly other tools around, like scrapers, that potentially could have been used to prepare hides for clothing by scraping them off, but they also could have been used for other purposes. We don't really know for sure what all they were being used for. So the overall conclusion is if we look at the archaeological evidence, it does not contradict a fairly recent origin of clothing, only about, you know, on the order of 70,000 years ago or so. So to summarize the results of this study, we see the body lice originated from head lice, again, 70,000 years ago or so. We see that there's also a population expansion that occurred in lice at right around this time. And while this is all very speculative, what is very tempting to try to relate this to is the expansion of modern humans out of Africa, which has been dated directly from DNA evidence from humans to be between 50 and 100,000 years ago. So it suggests that perhaps it's when humans expanded out of Africa, began growing in size, developed clothing, and that this clothing became available as a niche for the origin of the body lice. So what about Neanderthals? You know, whenever you work with modern humans, sooner or later someone will ask you, well, what about Neanderthals? What does this tell us about Neanderthals and other archaic humans? Did they have clothing? Well, this is what we think is the evolutionary relationships of Modern humans and Neanderthals, they shared a common ancestor, you know, 600,000 years ago, give or take a few tens of thousands of years. Clothing, if we believe the lice results, originated sometime here, around the dispersion of modern humans out of Africa. So this would suggest one of two possibilities for Neanderthals. Either they did not have clothing, or if they did have clothing, they invented it independently of modern humans. In other words, they did not inherit clothing from a common ancestor of Neanderthals and uh, modern humans. Now, there is nothing in what we can infer from the cognitive abilities of Neanderthals, you know, based on the archaeological record and so forth, that would suggest that uh, they were just too stupid to come up with the idea of clothing, right? Certainly quite feasible that they would have come up with the idea of clothing on their own, invented it independently from modern humans. And it certainly is the case that if you look at reconstructions of Neanderthals, they're almost always shown as having clothing. You know, something like this. <laughs> but there's another potential view about what Neanderthals were like. Maybe they were more like this. Now, this is a pretty terrible reconstruction of a Neanderthal from most perspectives. 
But I show it here because it shows Neanderthals as having body hair, as having retained their body hair. And so that brings up the question, well, when did we actually lose body hair during our evolutionary history? We have no clue about that from fossil evidence. And modern genetics so far has also not been able to come up with an answer. So when did we lose body hair? I mean, if we lost body hair recently, maybe Neanderthals still had body hair. Maybe then, therefore, when they moved out of Africa into the colder climates, they didn't need clothing because they already had their body hair. And there's lots of other mammals that moved out of Africa at the same time. They didn't invent clothing. They got along perfectly well without it. So that brings up the question, when did we lose our body hair? And a potential answer from that comes from the third type of lice that we have. That's this lovely creature here. This is a pubic louse. Pubic lice, as their name suggests, they live and feed exclusively in the pubic region. And as I already told you, the head lice live and feed exclusively on the scalp. And now you ask yourself, well, how would this difference come about between these two different types of lice? And the answer that seems to make sense is that, you know, at one time we had body hair, we had hair all over us, we had one type of lice, and then we lost body hair, so that we only have hair in the pubic region and in the head region. And now we have a barrier that the lice can't cross. And so we have geographic isolation, we get classic (laughs) allopatric speciation, and now we have our two types of lice. Well, again, if you buy that, then we can use the molecular clock approach and ask, when did the difference between pubic and head head lice occur and date that divergence? And that might tell us something about when humans then lost their body hair. Now, that all sounds very nice and neat. However, it's not quite that simple. Life is never that simple. So here's the view of lice evolution that I just told you about. Going back as far as the gorilla lineage now. So the gorilla lineage branched off before the chimp and the human lineages. But if we start with the gorilla lineage, we have a common ancestor, gorillas, chimps, and humans. The gorilla lineage branches off. That leads to the evolution of the gorilla louse. Chimp lineage branches off. That leads to the differentiation of chimp lice and the origin of all human lice. We then have loss of body hair. That leads to the origin of the pubic louse. And finally, we have clothing. And that leads to the origin of the body louse, separate from the head louse. That looks all very reasonable. However, the complication is that the taxonomy, classical taxonomy of lice, does not agree with this. So the classical taxonomy um, looks at things this way. Body louse, it's in the genus Pediculus, as I've told you, as is the head louse, as is the chimpanzee louse. But the pubic louse is put into a different genus by the taxonomist. It's the genus Therus. And that is the same genus, the gorilla louse. So, I will refrain from any speculation as to how (laughs) humans might have gotten pubic lice from gorillas. But one possibility is that the taxonomy based on morphology is wrong, right? There are many examples we know where taxonomy based on morphology differs from that based on the DNA. So, clearly what we need is DNA evidence to see what's going on here. And we also need DNA from gorilla lice to see what's going on here. And David Reed's group at Florida, did just that, and found that, lo and behold, the taxonomy is supported by the DNA. You get the same picture from the DNA. And when did this divergence between human pubic lice and gorilla lice occur? About 3.3 million years ago. And so if you believe that this colonization, this transfer from gorillas to humans, would have occurred only after humans would have lost their body hair, which I think is probably the most reasonable scenario, 
then that would suggest that body hair loss occurred relatively early on in human evolution, not too long after the divergence from the chimp lineage, which fits with some other ideas that people have had about loss of body hair. And so it would appear that our ancestors do have some <laughs> explaining to do to us. So to conclude, genetic analyses of head and body lice do indicate that clothing became important somewhere around 70,000 years ago. It seems to coincide with the expansion of modern humans out of Africa. Maybe had something to do with that expansion. Genetic analyses of pubic lice suggest our ancestors had lost their body hair by roughly 3, 3.3 million years ago, not so long after their divergence from chimpanzees. So it was relatively early on. I'll end with the acknowledgments, especially when to single out Ralph Kittler and Manfred Kaiser, the two people in my group who did the work we've done on lice, and all these other people for contributing samples, um, not necessarily their own lice samples, of course, <laughs> and the Mox Planck Society for funding all of our work. Thank you for your attention. I'm going to start with a family photo. Okay, so this is my niece, Allison. She's about seven years old. And this is also my niece, Allison, right after birth. So what's going on here? There's something very unusual about our species, right? We take it for granted that our newborns come out with a very large amount of body fat under the skin or subcutaneous fat. We even have a name for it, baby fat, and we consider it a mark of health. But this is actually a very unusual characteristic. So if you look across other species, like gorilla, for instance, they come out skinny. Here's a baboon, also very skinny. Okay, and almost 20 years ago, I compiled all of the information I could about body fat and newborns and published a paper on it, and this is what I found. These species here, as you can see, are all about 3% body fat or less at birth. And this includes species like elephant seals, black bear, pigs. Okay, so typical mammals. Over here you have harp seals, guinea pigs, and and the very fattest species that I could find evidence for was us, at about 15% body fat. Now, preparing for this talk, I went into the literature and tried to find any more data points that have been published, especially on primates. Notice here that the only primate that I could find was a baboon at about 3%. We have some more data points now. So we have macaques, squirrel monkeys, another species of macaque, all less than 3%. Over here on the left, you'll see that there's a new species that I found that's actually a little bit fatter than us, it seems. But there's only two individuals in that, in that sample, and they're clinical. I'm sorry. Yeah, they're a clinical sample, not a wild sample. So we'll see how that, that shakes out, but it really doesn't fundamentally change the story. It's pretty clear that this is an unusual characteristic for us. We're born with a lot of body fat. And not only that, now look at body fat development postnatally. What this shows is skin fold thickness. So this is how you measure the, the thickness of the subcutaneous fat. You take a skin fold and you literally measure it with a caliper. And this is the average here, this red line, so within the population. And you see that we're born with a lot of fat, but then right after birth we put lots of calories into putting on more fat. And our fat actually peaks out uh, during the first year of life, and then it declines to that very low point that I showed you earlier in kind of mid-childhood. So the question that I want to pose today is why are our newborns so unusually fat, and yet our children are so lean? Okay. And before getting into this, I want to dispel one myth that, that you'll find out there. Look, if you look at old pediatric textbooks, there's this idea that, yes, this is an unusual characteristic of our species, and perhaps it's insulation because we lost uh, hair. 
So we lost our hair, and we need this kind of insulatory layer of blubber to compensate for that. Now, there's a lot of evidence against that. It sounds like a neat idea. But we don't have any evidence that humans preferentially deposit fat under the skin. What happens is the more fat you put on, the more fat you get under the skin. It's a good place to put it, right? So there's nothing that suggests that we've kind of anatomically adapted ourselves for that kind of insulatory layer. There are human populations that live in the high uh, Arctic, right? Places like uh, Alaska and so forth, that where you, where you see biological adaptations to conserve heat. You see shorter limbs and you see sh- shorter stature. What this does is it reduces skin uh, surface area and reduces heat loss, right? In those populations, you see no evidence for thicker skin folds. In fact, they tend to have slightly thinner skin folds than their temperate ladder uh, populations. And then finally, you could look at newborns and just see studies have done this to try to figure out what it is that predicts thermal stability. And it's not the skin fold thicknesses that matter. It seems to be the muscle mass, which is where the heat is being generated, right? So I didn't find a lot of evidence to support this idea that that, that, uh, this excessive amount of subcutaneous fat, especially in in our newborns, is related to insulation. And so I've proposed a different idea, a kind of competing idea, and that is the key to understanding our unusually fat babies may lie in another unique human trait, our unusually large and energetically costly brains. And the idea here is that if you have a large and energetically costly brain, you're going to need, effectively, a bigger battery to to back it up during a period of shortage. Right, and so that's the idea that I want to dig into today. We're going to explore. We're going to talk a bit about the human brain, its energetic costs, and, and why we need a bigger energy backup. Then I'm going to tell you about some new work that some collaborators and I published last year that quantifies the cost of the brain across the life cycle from infancy onward, or actually from birth onward. And then finally, we're going to bring all this together with some other information and try to make sense of this pattern of fat development that we see in humans. Okay, so let's start with this first point. So we're a brainy species. The last four million years, as you see here, you've seen a lot of increase in in brain size. And as I've already alluded to, this is important energetically because brain is costly tissue. So a gram of adult brain uses about 15 times the energy of a gram of muscle. And all of you are sitting here right now, you're adults, your bodies are putting off heat at about 100 watts. So that's the amount of heat you're generating, kind of warming up the room. 20 of those watts, or 20% of your resting metabolic rate, is accounted for by the brain. Now, that may not seem that impressive, and it may even seem a little dim, but if you compare us to other species, you'll see that that's actually pretty remarkable. So all these species up here are in the order of 2 to 3% of resting metabolic rate goes to the brain. Here you see there's a couple uh, primate species, spider monkeys and chimpanzees at about 10%, and then human adults are at 20%. Now... If you look at the newborn, of course, the size of the head is so much larger compared to the body, so that number is going to be a lot bigger in the newborn. And sure enough, in the old literature, the estimate had been that 60% of the resting metabolism is necessary just to keep the brain going. Now, this is important. It's not only just costly, but it has other ramifications. Because unlike other tissues and organs, you can't turn the brain down. You can't dim it, right? Let's say that you're starving or are under nutritional stress. The brain has a constant metabolic rate, whether you're sleeping, active, what have you. It has to be maintained. And without that, without access to that energy, you get brain damage. Okay, so naturally it makes sense that we need to have a bigger energy backup. And in fact, you can think of an analogy from from day-to-day life that I think illustrates this. That would be a mortgage. Every month, if you have a house and you have a house mortgage, you have to pay that mortgage, right? And if you don't, you have to foreclose. So if you lose your job, you better have money in your savings account account in order to cover that mortgage for the period that you're, you're unemployed. 
the bigger your mortgage, the bigger the savings account you're going to need to have to avoid foreclosure, right? So it's the same sort of logic. Effectively, our newborns have a mortgage that accounts for 60, 60% of their budget, right? So they need to have a very big savings account. Now, we, so maybe this, this, this gives us you know, some insights into what's going on at birth, but we also have to understand why we become so lean by childhood, right? We set up both of those problems. And so maybe it's the change in the size of that mortgage that matters. So let's go ahead and start to look at that. What this shows here is the percentage of body weight that's accounted for by the brain at different ages in humans. And at birth, as you can see, it's about 12% of body weight, okay? And then it declines, all right, as that, as that ratio of brain size to body uh, size also declines. And so perhaps, you know, we need a lot of, we, we need this big energy buffer back here because our brains really dominate the budget, but down here, less so, all right? Maybe that's what's going on. Well, unfortunately, it's not that simple because all we're looking at in that last graph is the size of the brain. There are other factors to take into account because energy use by a gram of brain is actually very dynamic during development, and this relates to the high cost of learning during childhood. What makes the brain costly are synapses, that is, the connections between nerves. And the number of synapses changes uh, very dramatically. So let's take a look at that. These are data, classic data, on synaptic densities. So this is telling us how many synapses there are, how many neural connections there are within a gram of brain. And you can see that it goes way up quickly after birth and peaks out during childhood, and then it declines again. There's a process of pruning. So this, this entire period of very high synaptic connectivity is all about learning during childhood. And what it means for our perspective is that there's a need for energy to buoy that, that excess neuronal activity. So how does one go about measuring that, that energy? Well, positron emission tomography imaging, this PET imaging, is one way you can do this. This, is what me- this allows you to measure the rate of glucose uptake in the brain. And Harry Chugani, in a classic paper from 1987 that I'm showing here, did this in kids from birth all the way up to adulthood. And you can see these folks over here on the, on the right are the adults. So this dotted line is the adult level of glucose uptake. All right. At birth, each gram of brain tissue is using about 30% less glucose than the adult brain. That's because the synapses haven't proliferated yet. And then by childhood, it's actually twice the adult rate. Okay, so it's much higher. And then you get the pruning, and it prunes down to the adult level eventually. And so what we need okay, to really take into account what's going on with the brain is not just to account for the size of the brain, but we also need to, to take into account this changing energy density, this changing energy uh, use rate related to, to learning. And so this is actually something that I and my collaborators uh, at Northwestern University, at Wayne State, and at Georgetown, and George uh, Washington University set out to do, and we published a paper on this last year. I'm going to tell you what we did very quickly. We started with Chugani's PET data, which I've already shown you. That tells us how much glucose each gram of brain is using. Then to get the global cost of the brain, we actually need to know how many grams of brain there are. And for that, we use brain uh, volume data from, from MRI. And you do all that, you do the, the numbers, and you get total brain energy costs. There's many more steps involved, but that's sort of a, a simplified version. So when you do that, this is what we find. Right? So this shows brain glucose uptake from birth until 15 years of age. And 15 years is the last PET measurement, so that's where we stopped. And you can see that it peaks out at about five years of age. It's higher in males because they're just bigger. There's no real biological difference there. Now, there's a remarkable story here, okay? So uh, brain glucose uptake at five years of age is about twice the adult level. You can see this dotted line here, okay? So their brains are using twice the energy of the adult brain, despite the fact 
that their brains haven't even fully reached adult size yet, and despite the fact that their bodies are one-third the size. So this is a remarkable burden on their bodies energetically. And so that's what we want to take into account. Let's look at the next step here. Let's look at, instead of looking at grams of glucose, let's consider brain energetics as a, as a fraction of the resting metabolic rate like we did earlier. And when we do it that way, we see that it's peaking out at about five years of age, four or five years of age again. And at that point, okay, two-thirds of all resting calories are going to the brain, which is pretty remarkable, right? This leaves only one-third of the calories to do everything else. And so clearly some other functions must have been shortchanged in us. And one of those functions that did get shortchanged, it looks like, was body weight growth. So what this shows here is the rate of body weight gain. And as, you, as we all know, infants grow very quickly, and then the rate of weight gain slows down, right? And so that they start to grow quite slowly by age five or so, or during childhood. You, you almost don't see them growing. You, you notice their development, but you don't see them getting bigger and bigger, right? And then, gradually, uh, weight gain takes off again with puberty. Let's superimpose the brain energetics curve on that. There's pretty clearly a nice relationship between these two. As the brain becomes increasingly costly, okay, because of brain growth and the, the proliferation of those synapses, those costly synapses, uh, body weight growth is, is going down. When the brain is at its most costly, body weight growth is at its lowest, and then it reverses with puberty, right? So clearly there's something very interesting going on here, and it looks like one of the ways that we were able to, to support these very high energetic costs related to our brain development is by taking calories that would have gone into growth and putting them into the brain, right? So we're kind of subsidizing that. And one of the things that suffers from that is fat stores, because that's why we have such low adiposity during this era, because we're basically shutting down growth and we're shutting down fat deposition. Now this leads to a bit of a paradox in what would appear to be a challenge for our hypothesis, right? Because we've got the age of lowest energy reserves when our savings account is at its lowest, coinciding with the age when our mortgage is at its highest, right? So this looks very precarious. And, you know, doesn't this potentially pose a problem for a hypothesis? If baby fat is a brain battery, how can body fat reach its lowest level at the age when the brain's energy needs are greatest? And the answer is, you don't necessarily need a large savings account if you've got wealthy relatives and friends who are willing to lend to you. And so that's what goes on. Let's take, let's take a look at this. As children grow and develop, they shift from relying on their onboard energy buffer, their body fat, to social buffering. Right? So the, the effectiveness of social buffering increases, and as that happens, the reliance on body fat goes down. And we're going to take a look at this. Let's start early on when there's this high reliance on body fat, as we've already talked about. Why do we rely on body fat early? The reason is this, because of the cause of, of nutritional stress. Early in life, the main causes of nutritional stress are actually infectious disease. And forget about the common cold. Think about environments that are less sanitized than, than ours. Uh, infections can be quite severe. And this is really the cause of, for instance, under five mortality, infant mortality. It's all about undernutrition, and most of it is driven by infection. And it's easy to see why, because kids, when they get sick, they get anorexia. They stop eating. And then diarrheal diseases are very common. This is a very common infliction in infancy. This impairs digestion. So your parents and your caregivers can have all the calories and the food in the world, but if you stop eating and you don't digest, you're not going to get access to them, which forces you to go internal and rely on your own onboard energy reserves. That's the only, really the only strategy that you have. Add on top of this fever, right, which actually increases your energy expenditure and sort of makes the whole thing worse. So that's the point. The common symptoms related to infections cut the baby off from caregivers and force a reliance internally on their own, on their own battery. And so here we see the, the uh, 
age trends in diarrheal illness globally. And you see that it really peaks out in late infancy in the second half of the first year. And this coincides with weaning and the introductions of foods that are often not sterile. And newborns are born without antibodies, right? Which is why they get sick so much. But every time they get sick, they acquire antibodies and they become more and more protected moving forward. So as infants age, they, they acquire these protective antibodies and the infections then plummet, right? So they're really not a problem by four to five years of age or not as much. And as those infections go down, they're no longer being cut off from their caregivers and they can start to benefit from some of the, really, the unique features of the way we raise our kids. And I'm going to talk about that. It'll be the last point we talk about. If we look at other mammals, food comes from the mother, right? Breast milk. And then eventually you get weaned and you, and you self-provision. In our species, fathers are a part of the picture, both in terms of provisioning and care, but there's a whole cast of other characters. This is something fairly unique to us. We're considered cooperative breeding species because many individuals are, are involved in raising our kids. And importantly, those human caregivers, in turn, are embedded within networks based on cooperation and food sharing. Let's take a look at this. So here's an example where there's four hunters that are not sharing. The, the second individual down has a kill and the others don't, so they go hungry. On this day, the first individual has a kill, but the others go hungry, and so on, right? So it's kind of a feast-famine scenario. Here's the same scenario where they're sharing, where this individual shares with other folks under the assumption that they're going to share with him when they have a kill, right? And so in this kind of system with food sharing, everybody gets to eat every day. You don't have the feast-famine, and this is what we do. If you look at uh, data from hunter-gatherer societies like the Hiwi and the Aceh, from uh, lowland Amazon in South America. This shows the number of families that receive part of the kill. This is very common. Food sharing, food flows between families. Here's another interesting study that was done among the Hadza. And here the individuals were given honey sticks and there was an economic game and and the researchers evaluated how honey flowed through the society. And as you can see, it's flowing all over the place, right? To both genetic kin, uh, and to in-laws and to friends, right? So if somebody up here comes up short one day, there's going to be food coming from elsewhere, all right? So our caregivers, there's not only multiple caregivers taking care of our kids, but they're embedded in these networks of cooperation and food sharing, which buffer. And it's for this reason that I think we can go out on a limb as children. Our children go way out on a limb because they're maxing out the size of their mortgage at a point when they have a minim- minimal savings account. They can do it because they're embedded embedded within those networks. So to summarize and come back to where I began, our babies are born with a lot of fat, okay? And and the reasons for this are that they have extremely high uh, energy requirements of their brains that are fragile, combined with the fact that the the primary cause of nutritional stress at this age is infection, which cuts them off from caregivers and forces a reliance on internal stores. The situation's very different by childhood. The brain is even more costly, okay, but now they're embedded within and benefit from that social buffering that's so effective. And they no longer need to put those calories away in a savings account. They can use them for the things that matter at this age, learning and child development. And that's all. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.